This is the ballast of our assurance and the foundation of our joy. That our sins have been forgiven. And we have been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus. This is what gets us through trials and afflictions. And this comfort is what drives and enables us to pursue reconciliation when we sin against each other. Beloved, our treachery, our offense, our measureless debt has been paid in full by our Savior. We have been pardoned, rescued, and changed by His forgiving and restoring love. And it is that gospel love that is put on display to the world when we forgive one another. This is what we'll consider as we hear God's word together. So please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. <clears throat> He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now impress upon our forgetful minds the wonderful truths of the gospel of grace. Help us grasp and understand your glorious purposes for your church, that we may demonstrate to the unbelieving world what it means to receive the grace of forgiveness, and to love one another just like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The story is told of that old Methodist preacher, John Wesley, who was once riding with a general in his horse carriage. And Wesley noticed that the general was very annoyed and angry with his servant who was driving that carriage. When the servant sought the general's forgiveness for his error, the general looked at him, and then he looked at Wesley and said, I never forgive, and I never forget. On hearing this, Wesley leaned over and said to the general, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Now, while this man in the story might sound like an extreme example of someone who doesn't understand the truth that before God, we are all sinners in need of forgiveness, the fact is that there are many people today, perhaps even in our church, who may never boldly say what the general said, 
but nevertheless live and behave towards other Christians in the same way. Unwilling to forgive, holding a grudge, harboring bitterness, holding someone's sinful past against them, and seeing the sins of others as being unworthy of compassion and unwilling to reconcile. And of course, to make things worse, we live in a society where this sort of attitude tends to flourish, doesn't it? As one author has written, we live in a time when everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. But Jesus teaches us that those who have received God's mercy, who know Him as Father, those who have received the joy and comfort of His forgiveness, must be willing to forgive others from the heart. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, unforgiveness is indicative of a wicked heart, and not a heart that has been changed by the gospel of God's mercy. You know, this is evident in the words of the master to the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 32 to 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you, the idea there being you of all people, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Beloved, those who have been forgiven because of Christ who bore our sins and was wounded for our transgressions, must have a heart that is willing to forgive those who sin against them. In fact, this forgiveness uh, that we received from the Father of mercies in Christ alone, this forgiveness that Christ has purchased with His blood, this forgiveness which covers not just the sins we have committed in the past, but all of them, even the ones you will commit tomorrow and thereafter until the day of your glorification. This forgiveness that Christ has purchased is the basis upon which the Father forgives us every day. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 8-9. Why is the Father just? Why is it right for our Father to do this when we turn to Him in confession and repentance and ask Him for cleansing? Because it would be very unjust of Him to deny us what Christ has purchased for the children of God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Friends, those who are trusting in their own righteousness find it very hard to forgive when they are sinned against. But those who are keenly aware of their sinfulness and are trusting in Christ, pray like this, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But this brings us to a very important matter. We cannot talk about forgiveness unless we first know, A, who sinned against whom, and B, what the sin is. And most important of all, God must agree that you have been sinned against. Sin needs to be biblically defined. Now, when you read 2 Corinthians, it becomes apparent that someone at the church sinned against the Apostle Paul when he visited them. This is the man that he describes as such a one in chapter 2, verse 6. 
This person is a man. He is a he in verse 7. This man was deceived by certain Jews who called themselves apostles. And he was very impressed with their worldly leadership like the rest of the congregation. After all, these men embodied in their person and, and leadership everything that Corinthian culture held in high regard. Power, status, rhetoric, self-promotion. And in an attempt to establish their leadership at this church, these men influenced the congregation to turn against Paul. And so when Paul arrived in Corinth, eager to help this church that he loved to break free from the influence of these men, this man verbally attacked Paul and opposed his apostolic authority. Paul was slandered, his character was attacked, and his apostleship questioned. And so this turned out to be a very painful visit for Paul. But while he was personally sinned against, this was not just about Paul or just about this man. This was not a small issue. I want you to get a sense of the sin here. You see, the church had bought into the lies of these so-called apostles and had spurned and sinned against the Lord Jesus himself by rejecting the authority of his true apostle. To reject Paul, to reject his apostolic word, was to reject God's word. They were cutting off the very branch that they were sitting on. Because according to Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostolic word. It was precisely this word that was being challenged. The gospel was at stake, and this only made their sin more grievous. And when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 4, Paul was worried that just as the serpent deceived Eve, these Corinthians would be led astray and away from Christ. You see, by listening to these men, the church was in danger of receiving a different Jesus and a different gospel. And since these things were escalating, Paul warned the Corinthians, and then he left, saddened and deeply wounded. But he didn't leave things as they were. Out of great anguish, he wrote them a letter calling them to repent and be reconciled to him. He also canceled his plan to visit them because he wanted to give them time to respond to that letter. And even though he had been sinned against, Paul was working he was working as a pastor for the joy of that congregation. He was aiming for their repentance and reconciliation through that tearful but firm letter. You see, it was a Christ-like love that was driving Paul to work for their comfort, even though they had offended him. Now, several months later, Titus, who had delivered that letter, came back to Paul with the good news that many members in the congregation, though while Though they were grieved at Paul's letter, they were grieved into repenting. And they had once again embraced Paul as their apostle. And one of the ways they made their repentance known was to discipline the man who had sinned against Paul. And so in response to these changes, Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians. Now by the grace of God, through the disciplinary action of, this, of the church, this man, the offender also came to his senses, and he repented of his sin and foolishness. And just as Paul's letter, out of his wounded love, had produced comfort and joy in the lives of these repentant members, their repentant action in disciplining this man also produced um, repentance in him. But instead of rejoicing, this repentant man remained sorrowful. 
And so in this passage, Paul addresses that very issue. The, the reason his joy was short-circuited, as it were, was because the church had not forgiven him and restored him to fellowship. And so as we look at these verses, there are two lessons we can learn as a congregation. Number one, just as discipline for unrepentant sin is an act of love, so is forgiveness and restoration. Just as discipline for unrepentant sin is an act of love, so is forgiveness and restoration. And here's the second lesson. The pursuit of forgiveness and restoration in the church is spiritual warfare. The pursuit of forgiveness and restoration in the church is spiritual warfare. But first, let's consider that first point. Just as discipline for unrepentant sin is an act of love, so is forgiveness and restoration. Look with me at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, in the previous verse, Paul said that the reason he wrote that severe letter to them was because he loved them. Uh, those words of truthful rebuke flowed out of wounded love with the aim of bringing them the comfort of joy and repentance. And praise God, that's exactly what happened. Their repentance not produced not only joy in their hearts, but it also produced joy and comfort in Titus, who then went on to minister joy and comfort to Paul. And brothers, this is how the Holy Spirit multiplies joy in our lives through our obedience. And while we can infer this from the text we have seen so far, Paul states this explicitly, and I want you to see this. So look ahead to chapter 7, verses 6 to 7. Chapter 7, verses 6 to 7. But God, who comforts the downcast, that was Paul's state before he received the news of their repentance. He was downcast. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. So God uses His people as means. He comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. So comfort not only came in the person of Titus, but in the message of Titus. That's a very Christ-like way of bringing comfort, isn't it? Not just in His person, but through His words which He was comforted by you as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So you can see here how joy multiplied. But here in this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wants the Corinthians to view this man's sin rightly. This wasn't just a private matter between Paul and this man. Now, there are times... In the life of a congregation when sin is precisely that. And at that point, we must do what Jesus asked us to do in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But there are times when because of pride and hard-heartedness and unrepentance, this has to involve others in order to love the offender and pursue holiness and aim for spiritual restoration. At Corinth, not only was this sin of slander and anger directed against Paul, but it had spread and gained traction. 
because of the influence of these false apostles and the influence of this man. An entire congregation had been turned against Paul, and not just Paul, but the very gospel he was preaching. Now, we don't know why no one spoke up for Paul. Very often when things like this happen in a congregation, there are always those who are clueless, cowardly, or callous. None of which constitutes godly Christian behavior. Now, what Christ wants is people of conviction and courage. But Paul wants this repentant majority to know that this man's sin in reality affected all of them because of the very nature of the church. So think of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. We are members of one body. That is the spiritual reality that God has brought us into through the work of His Spirit. Beloved, we are members of the household of God. And how each one of us is doing spiritually impacts the other, either directly or indirectly. And so Paul says, if anyone has caused pain or grief, that anyone being the person who sinned against Paul, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure or, or partially, that's what that word means, not to put it too severely, meaning not to overstate my point, he has caused pain to all of you. Now this doesn't mean that Paul is denying that he suffered pain because of this man's sin. Nor is he saying that everyone was equally affected. But he is saying that this grief of his was shared by them as they came to realize and repent what had happened in their midst. So I think the the NIV captures this well when it says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. You see, again, this shows Paul's heart, doesn't it? His focus is not on himself, but rather the spiritual well-being of the entire congregation. He is laboring for their unity and joy. But as he does that, he doesn't forget to labor for the joy of the offender. Look at verse 6. For such a one, referring to the offender, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, by punishment, he's referring to the church's act of, of administering church discipline on an unrepentant member. Jesus tells us to do this in Matthew 18, verse 19. After several steps of confronting someone in their sin, if they do not repent, then the final court of appeal is the ecclesia, the gathered assembly. Listen to this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 19, if he refuses to listen to them, those two or three witnesses who are able to establish every charge, then tell it to the church, the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, to the gathered assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, this person is to be treated as an unbeliever, as someone whose life does not match his confession. The church is to put such a one out of their fellowship because they can no longer say in good conscience that this person represents Christ. Because he's not behaving like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, the friends, the driving motivation for church discipline or any kind of correction is always love. To act in this way is not, is, is not only to obey Jesus, but it is to act like Him and take His side against sin. Listen to Revelation 3 verse 19. Those whom I love, says Jesus, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You see this even in the Old Testament. Psalm 141 verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. That word that is translated as kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is often used to refer to God's steadfast love, His covenant love, His determination to do His people's spiritual good. And that godly commitment is demonstrated when a fellow believer corrects you. He's doing it in love for your holiness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. We see this even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul instructs the congregation not to tolerate a man who was living in unrepentant sexual immorality, but to put him out of their fellowship, out of their communion. He is to be excommunicated. That's what that term means, to be removed from membership or fellowship as an act of discipline. It is to say that this man no longer walks in communion with God or with us, because he's not repenting of his sin. He's not walking in the light, but in darkness. Now, why does Paul ask them to do this? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, when dealing with a different man, he says, do this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, the aim is restoration, to do this person good. Beloved, discipline for unrepentant sin is an act of love, even though it may not feel that way to the unrepentant sinner. You see, the congregation had put this man out of their fellowship, and notice how they did it. Paul says this punishment by the majority, this tells you that not everyone was on board with this, but some sort of decision-making process took place, probably a vote by a show of hands. I know some people get very upset with this because they say, oh, voting is a modern concept. But this is not alien to the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19, when Paul speaks of churches appointing someone, he uses a Greek word that etymologically means to select by raising your hand. That's what that word means. In our day, we call this a vote. Furthermore, this word in Greek literature outside the Bible is used to describe voting. So a majority of the members had come to see the folly of their ways, and they repented and set in motion a series of steps which led to the removal of this man. But there were still a number of people, a minority, that did not approve when the church voted. But what happened here, I think, is very instructive to us. One, the congregation took responsibility to do this as an act of faithfulness and love. And two, they did not feel that they had to have consensus or unanimity to do this. But then later on, it turned out that this man, just like the repentant majority, was grieved into repenting. But the congregation failed to, to recognize that. They were too severe in the way that they treated him. Friends, what we see happening in Corinth 
is unfortunately very common in evangelical churches today. Either we are too tolerant of sin, and we want to sweep everything under the carpet, or we are too severe and unnecessarily harsh. And the reason sometimes people are severe is they want to accomplish what only God can accomplish. Now, we should not try and accomplish the work of the Spirit in the hearts of others by our own strength. We must do what God's Word tells us to do, even if it makes us uncomfortable, and then pray that the Lord would change people's hearts. Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's sufficient because God is sufficient. So trust in His wisdom and His ways. Paul says, look at how God has worked repentance in this man. Now we don't know how they were treating this man, but Paul certainly knew. Titus had told him. And so he says to them, look at verse 7, this is enough. So you should rather do this instead. Turn to forgive and comfort him. Notice those two things. Firstly, they must forgive him. They must forgive him. The assumption in this text is that he repented, and so Paul says, do not hold this against him. Show him the mercy that the Lord showed you. You see, the, the, the repentant majority were once unrepentant. They too had sinned. They had received God's mercy. They were now repentant because of the Lord's grace in their hearts, and now they were struggling to show this same grace and mercy to this man. Paul says, do not hold this against him. Show him the mercy that the Lord showed you. Friends, forgiving is not forgetting. God didn't forget your sin. Well, you might say, well, what do you mean? Doesn't God say in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will remember their sin no more? Well, yes, He does say that, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God has amnesia. We're talking about the Lord who is omniscient. What He means is that He will no longer hold it against you because Jesus paid it all. Isn't that why we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look upon Him and pardon or forgive me. You see, Paul says, forgive this repentant man. Don't let his past prevent you from reconciling with him and restoring him to fellowship. This man is now behaving like a brother, like a Christian. So treat him like a Christian. You know, the word that is translated as forgive means to give graciously or generously. It's the same word that he will use in chapters 8 and 9 to talk about generous giving. They are to give generously because they know the generous grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.32, to forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there are a couple of things I want to say about this. I want to talk about seeking forgiveness and extending forgiveness. 
Seeking forgiveness is not the same as saying you're sorry. It's not the same as a mere apology, because that does not involve talking about your sin. Forgiveness requires that you identify your sin. So, so don't say you're sorry, rather say, brother, I want to confess to you that I sinned against God and you by lying to you about whatever it is you lied about. And then say, please forgive me for lying to you. It was unloving. It was wicked. I acted more like a child of Satan who is a liar than like Christ who is the truth. And I am ashamed of my actions. And I want to assure you that henceforth I will always strive by God's grace to be truthful with you. Will you please forgive me? If you have not identified your sin and all you have is a mere sorry, then brother or sister, you have not done business with God. You need to examine your actions in light of Scripture. You need to think about what you did. You need to see your sin the way God sees it. You must recognize the gravity and evil of your sin. You must mourn over it. You must repent and turn to Christ for His cleansing power. Only then will you be empowered by the Spirit to seek out the forgiveness of the one you have wronged. And when you do that, Pray that the Lord would work in the heart of the person to enable him or her to forgive you. And for the person on the other end, when someone asks your forgiveness, don't squirm as though this is about you. But rather rejoice for the evidence of grace you see in this brother or sister's life. Remember the greatness of your debt of sin that was paid by Christ. Remember the daily forgiveness that you receive. And with the heart of forgiveness, with an attitude of forgiveness, transact that forgiveness. Say, I forgive you. And be reconciled. Say, I forgive you. Don't say it's okay. That's the worst thing you could say. Because sin is never okay. Forgive them as Christ forgave you. And then be lavish with your affection. Be loving towards them as your heavenly Father is with you. Now when it comes to extending forgiveness, remember that you cannot extend forgiveness without confronting someone of their sin. You know, often when people come to me and say, this person sinned against them, I always tell them, well, according to Matthew 18, whose job is it to go and tell your brother his fault? It's yours. And when people don't want to do this because they don't want to enter into an uncomfortable conversation, which in and of itself is unloving, they don't want to work for the joy of the other, they usually dress up their disobedient heart by trying to sound pious. Oh, pastor, it's okay. I've forgiven them. No, you haven't. It's phenomenally arrogant to think that way. The sinless Son of God suffered and bore the burden and penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And you're telling me that you can magnanimously pronounce forgiveness by disobeying God's word in Matthew 18 and avoiding the suffering of a hard conversation. God's Son obeyed. God's Son suffered. But you are so awesome you can produce the same results by disobedience and avoiding suffering? Beloved, there can be no genuine Christian ministry 
without affliction of some sort. It is a loving thing to confront someone about their sin, especially if you've been sinned against. Also remember that when you're extending forgiveness, you must extend forgiveness only when the person has repented of their sin and bears fruit worthy of repentance. And when that happens, you must be willing to do it again and again and again because that's how God deals with you, doesn't He? How many times has He forgiven you since the day you were born? Since the day you became a believer? Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 3 to 4, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I understand that there are always exceptions. Sometimes this is hard to do in a fallen world. The person you want to reach out to is unrepentant. Yet you can still forgive them in your heart, even though you cannot transact forgiveness. Or the person who has sinned against you perhaps is not anywhere in your sights. Maybe they've died. It still glorifies God to forgive them in your heart. Friends, forgiveness is a Christian duty. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of faith in the gospel. This is how we glorify God. You see, this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's the reason. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now, does this mean that we are saved, we are justified on the basis of our forgiveness of others? No, doesn't mean that. But it does mean that forgiven people, people who are justified, who have been changed by the power of the gospel, cannot but forgive. This is another way of saying there is no forgiveness for people who do not forgive. But forgiveness must be extended upon repentance. In the example that I just gave you, Repentance is seen in the willingness of the one who lied to come forward and confess their lies and, and speak the truth. Beloved, think of your conversion. Think of your conversion. When did the Lord forgive you? When you repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Why did you repent? Because the Spirit convicted you of your sin and moved you to confess them before the Lord. And how did that come about? Because the Spirit caused you to be born again. He made you alive and applied the grace of repentance to your heart. He created faith in your heart where there was none. All of this was possible because Christ secured all of it by His saving death and resurrection. Friends, when it is obvious that the same grace is evident in the life of another believer, we dare not withhold forgiveness. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, firstly, that they must forgive this man, and secondly, that they must comfort him. They must encourage him. Now, in this context, the encouragement he needs is what? The encouragement he needs is the joy of reconciliation and restoration to fellowship. This man was grieved into repenting, but these members had not extended to him that grace of forgiveness. And Paul says, do this, or this is what will happen. Look at the text or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Literally, he may be swallowed up in sadness, the text says. 
Brothers, there's a kind of grief, even grief over your sin, that can do you more harm than good. A grief that pulls you down to the depths of despair. Beloved, guilt and shame over sin is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. But it must be taken to Christ or it will destroy you. It must be taken to Christ and we must hear and receive the comfort of God through His people as, we, as they see our repentance. And that comfort is given through the love of God's people as strained relationships are reconciled and restored. You see, what begins with a confession of sin in a congregation must end with reconciliation and restoration for our joy to be full. This is the comfort that Paul desires for this man, that he be restored to fellowship with the body. Friends, it is an atrocious thing to turn a blind eye to obvious and glaring sin. It's an atrocious thing, but it's also equally appalling to not reconcile and restore a repentant person to the church. But do you know what's worse than both of those things? It's to remain unreconciled to the God who made you. So friend, if you're not a Christian, then God bears witness in His, in his word that outside of Christ, you are not His child, but His enemy. You remain unreconciled and unforgiven. God stands over every human being in judgment because we have all sinned against Him and have spurned His goodness and love. And if you continue in your ways, you will stand before Him on the day of judgment and you will bear the penalty for your sins. But if you confess your sins, if you turn away from them and put your trust in Jesus Christ, who is God's only mediator between sinners and a holy God, if you turn to Him whom God has sent to be the sin-bearer for anyone who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Him alone, then He will forgive you of all your sins and He will reconcile you to Himself through His Son. You see, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of His people and He rose from the dead in order to make enemies of God His children. So turn to Him and you will know the joy and the comfort of being restored to God through Christ. And you will come to know His fatherly love. You know, this kind of restorative love is demonstrated when we forgive others. Hence, Paul says in verse 8, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for Him. Just as discipline for unrepentant sin is an act of love, so is forgiveness and restoration. Instead of asserting His apostolic authority, Paul entreats them. He begs them to do what is right. Just as the church came together and formally disciplined this man, so they ought to affirm their love for him formally and publicly. That word reaffirm is a judicial term, which means to exercise rule in an official capacity. Paul is saying, confirm your love for him by restoring him publicly. And brothers, this is a beautiful thing, isn't it? For the church to come together and act corporately and declare that his life now matches his confession. It's not only a display of God's gospel grace in this man, but it's also a display of God's forgiving and restoring love in the congregation. And that is a powerful witness to the world, a day as glorious as this man's baptism. When a people who are sinned against forgive and reconcile with one another, this enables the world 
to see the gospel in action, to see the gospel that we proclaim week after week. They get to see it in the lives of God's people. Now, very practically, this is how corporate forgiveness looks like. The elders and those involved in this man's um, sin and those whom he sinned against speak to them, assess his repentance, hear him. Then the congregation is informed about what is happening so that the congregation can interact with this man. They take time to see if this man has repented and made things right with the people he has sinned against. A members meeting is called where this man can stand up and confess his sin and publicly tell anyone, everyone, how God has changed his life. And then the entire congregation verbally affirms his repentance and forgives him and then votes him back into membership with great joy and celebration. And knowing this church, this congregation, I know we will slaughter a fatted calf if we have to. And yet there's a reason why this is hard. There's a reason why this is hard. There's a reason why forgiveness and reconciliation is easier said than done. And that reason is because our sinful flesh and Satan work against us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that brings us to our second and final point. The pursuit of forgiveness and restoration in the church is spiritual warfare. You see, Satan loves it when we disobey God. He loves it when we are bitter and unkind and vengeful. He loves it. He hates it when we trust in the gospel and walk in the obedience of faith. A faith that works through love. And Paul says he wanted to test their obedience. Look at verse 9. For this is why I wrote. This is why I wrote to you that letter of rebuke and tears. That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Again, remember that the injury was not merely to Paul, but the very gospel was at stake as Paul's authority as an apostle was rejected. And so a good test, a good test of their repentance would look like obedience to his apostolic word. And they did obey him by disciplining this man. And yet Paul wanted to test and know their obedience. What's the phrase? In everything. And this is why he entreats them to forgive this man and restore him to fellowship. You see, since this man's actions was not just a personal attack on Paul, but an attack on his apostolic authority, an attack on the very foundation of the church, he caused pain to all of them. His offense was their offense, and so in like manner, their forgiveness was his forgiveness. Look at verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Now, this verse is not suggesting that we should get a proxy to do the hard work of forgiveness. So you should not say, hey, brother, you know, I don't want to talk to that person. Uh, can you go talk to him and do all that stuff that Pastor Aaron spoke about? Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. No, you don't get to do that because of the clear commands given to you to do this work of obedience. This is about the unique relationship Paul has as an apostle with the church at Corinth. 
or with any other church. His apostolic words in this letter are the very words of the risen Lord Jesus to build up the church. Besides, Paul is not the one who's being unforgiving. The Corinthians were. And in this letter, he exhorts them to forgive and restore this man whom he had, get this, already forgiven. We see this in the text. Look at the text. Indeed, what I have forgiven, referring to this man, if I have forgiven every, anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. <clears throat> the reason this sounds a little confusing to read is because of that conditional preposition, if, in your translations. And that's not there in the Greek text. And so it sounds like as though he hasn't forgiven him and he's asking them to do it, when in fact he has indeed forgiven. Indeed, what I have forgiven. So the if I have forgiven anything should be read as whatever I have forgiven has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Hence, the New King James translates it like this. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. You see, if he has forgiven that man, they should too. But notice he says he extended forgiveness for their sake. Now surely Paul is not arguing for a man-centered approach to forgiveness, nor is he saying he has no interest in personally reconciling with his brother. Remember, Paul's plan was to visit them for the third time, even as he wrote this letter. What he's saying is similar to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, when he wrote to them to remove a different man, that immoral man. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 4. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. See, when Paul uses that phrase, present in the spirit, he is referring to the spirit-inspired words of his letter. He knew that this letter would be read in the gathered assembly, in the presence of Christ, who said in Matthew 18 that as the church exercises church discipline, where two or three are gathered, he is there in their midst. And so as Paul's words were being read, his judgment would be pronounced. Now, in the same way, back to 2 Corinthians, in the same way, Paul forgives for their sake in the presence of Christ so that when the church would read this letter, they could formally and publicly restore this man. That's all that it means. That phrase, in the presence of Christ, is meant to remind the Corinthians of the solidarity they have with their apostle through the Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. But in all of this, don't miss that Paul wants the congregation to do this. He wants them to reaffirm their love, to publicly affirm his faith, and to restore him to fellowship. You see, Paul understands that this task has been entrusted to the local church. You see, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus says that he has given the local church the authority to bind or loose, that is to affirm or deny who is believing and behaving like a kingdom citizen or not. Brothers, this is called the church's task of exercising the keys of the kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the church is not on the defensive, it's on the offensive. When the church is careful about assessing who is a believer and who is not, and when they put out of their membership those who are unrepentant, it is on the offensive against the kingdom of darkness. To carefully think about who we bring into membership, to assess whether they understand and believe the apostolic gospel, to assess their lives for the fruit of conversion, to love and correct and discipline the unrepentant, to forgive and to restore the repentant, thereby rightly representing who is a kingdom citizen and who is not. All of that is spiritual warfare. That is why you, the members of Grace Church, should not take the responsibility that Christ has given you to labor for the joy of others lightly. Don't regard the members' meeting lightly. You know, the careful responsibility that you, the congregation, has to assess confessions and discipline unrepentant members and forgive and restore repentant brothers and sisters is a battle that has far more significance than any earthly war. Note the reason why Paul wants them to do this. He has forgiven this man for their sakes, because he knew that if he, if he didn't take the lead and do this, it would destroy the church. And so he wants them to do this. Why? Look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. So that we would not be exploited by him. For we are not ignorant of his designs. What designs? What's he got up his sleeve that Paul wants us to know about? Well, what does the context tell us? Being unforgiving and unwilling to reconcile and restore a repentant brother or sister to fellowship. Satan will use that. That's his design. Satan will use that to destroy a church. So don't be outwitted by him. You know that's his ploy. So fight against this by working hard to forgive and to reconcile and to be restored. That's the whole point of submitting to the apostolic word. Don't let Satan rob you of the gospel grace of forgiveness. Don't let him steer you away from him. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says that our heavenly father, the father of mercies and the God of comfort, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, when you cherish bitterness and anger, and you do not forgive, you behave as though you belong to the domain of darkness. If you have been harboring bitterness against someone, Repent of your sin. Ask the Lord for His forgiveness. Go to the person you are bitter against. Confess it and be reconciled. Remember how the Lord has forgiven you and how He continues to mercifully forgive you. If it's hard, if it's uncomfortable, if it's uneasy, remember that this is spiritual warfare. Look to the Lord for strength. Put on the full armor of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Talk to another member. 
Pray. Put on the mind of Christ. Remember His saving benefits and be reconciled. Do this and your lives will be pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, take responsibility for one another. Repent often of self-righteousness. Don't give Satan a foothold in your marriage or in your church. Remember that you are ambassadors of the gospel of reconciliation. This is more than just us. This is about the gospel. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Live like this and the world will know that the God of the gospel dwells in the presence of His people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you weak and weary. But we come to you in boldness, O Lord. Help our hearts, especially those who are struggling with unforgiveness. And we pray, O Lord, that your Spirit would do a powerful work. Make us tender-hearted. Cause us to be loving and forgiving. Help us reconciled and be restored to those that we need to be. O Lord, we pray that this restoring love would be manifest in this congregation. We pray for those who are unrepentant in their sin and pray that they would repent. Give them the grace of repentance, O Lord, that they may be reconciled first to you and then to us. And we pray that you would do all of this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.